Welcome back to another Beach Cop Detectives interview with the writers, cast, and crew of Terriers. This time out, we're talking with Sean Ryan, executive producer and writer on Terriers. In this interview, we talk about the division of labor between the producers, the casting of the show, and the choice of directors on the show, among a lot of other things. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Sean Ryan, executive producer on Terriers. I'm talking today with Sean Ryan, who is executive producer on Terriers and is currently executive producer on Timeless on NBC right now, which you should definitely all be watching. Sean, hi. Hi, Randy. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We're uh, we're coming up on the end of our Beach Cop Detectives run, and it's it's been a great time, and I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you about the show. Oh, well, thank you, and, and you've been doing a fantastic job talking with so many uh, key participants in the show, and I've enjoyed listening to myself. It's been nostalgic and and cool, and, and thank you for keeping the uh, the show in the limelight. Absolutely. I want to start with a question. I, I start with this question for pretty much everyone, or some variation on it, which is, six years down the road, uh, what are your feelings and memories about Terriers? Uh, I would say it occupies a very special uh, place for me. You know, Ted Griffin, who, who I've become quite good friends with um, before the show, during the making of the show, and ap- after the show... Uh, he has such a unique voice, and he created this amazing world that that I was able to you know to play in for a year. And Hank and Britt were two amazing characters that I got to write a little bit for. Um, spent a lot of time in the editing room working on the show, and uh, you know I think at the end of the day, at least at this point in my career, my legacy probably starts with the Shield, without a doubt. But after that, I would say there's a pretty good case that at least quality wise. That terriers, you know, might be the thing that, that I'm associated with that that is sort of remembered the fondest. Well, you were executive producer and also a writer on the show, and I know that it was sort of you and Tim Minear and Ted Griffin. How the, how did the showrunner duty, duties break down? You know, there was a lot to do. I would say that uh, Ted was oftentimes the big idea guy, and he was certainly the voice of the show. He was the guy who who had the the voices of Hank and Britt down the earliest in the process. Tim was someone that I had worked with way back on Angel, you know, in like the year 2000 and was always a, a writer that I admired. And, and I was the one that introduced him to Ted uh, and, and brought him into the process. I would say that Tim did a lot of the sort of heavy lifting early on in the stories, working with the writers in the room. Ted did a lot of rewriting the polishing. He also directed a couple episodes. I did a lot of the initial early editing, and then each of us would weigh in on the other areas. So I would do some polishing, rewriting. Tim would do some polishing and rewriting. I would do some story breaking. Ted would do some story breaking. You know, there was time on set for all of us. But the three of us sort of, I would say in general, Ted was doing a lot of the writing. Tim was doing a lot of the story breaking. I was doing a lot of the editing. Can you talk a little bit about the relationships that Terriers built up for you? Uh, well, it gave me – what I liked was that Terriers was not a show that I would have come up with on my own. And, and yet I felt by the end of that process that, that I was a very valuable contributor to the show. And it kind of gave me the idea and the confidence that I could tackle things that were sort of outside my initial comfort zone. You know, the show I'm doing right now that you referenced, Timeless for NBC, is a – sort of big, rollicking, fun, you know, family action adventure, historical drama, sci-fi show. And, and, and those are sort of genres that, that I usually wouldn't 
kind of attack on my own. But when Eric Kripke approached me, you know, with an idea for the show, I would say that my experience on Terriers sort of gave me hope that, that yeah, this is this is something that I haven't done, but that's part of the challenge and that's part of the joy of trying something that's a little bit outside your comfort zone. And so, so you know, so my work and success uh, on Terriers, I think, has has opened up my mind to give all kinds of different things a try. One of the things I've noticed so far on Timeless that's, that goes all the way back to all your work and going back to the Shield and all that kind of thing is that you have – there are sort of no small parts. You have this knack for finding small, memorable character parts. Is that something in your philosophy or is it just something that's, that's kind of worked out as you go along? Uh, that may be a function of my – ADD and never wanting to be bored when I'm watching an episode. And uh, first of all, thank you. That's quite a compliment. I'm not, I'm not sure I can. Um, yeah, I can't claim to be batting a thousand in that, in that regard. But but certainly we do try to make even some of the smaller roles memorable, either in the writing and or the casting of it. You know, I would say that I've had some success with a good casting eye, finding finding actors who, who may not be the typical people that you see in some of these roles. I mean, I think, think about The Shield and that pilot. You know, there were some small three to four line roles, um, one of whom we cast Walton Goggins in. And you look at Walton now and he's a world-class actor doing Quentin Tarantino movies. And, and you know, it's, it's looking for that slightly off kilter, but believable sort of people that you can cast. And certainly Terriers was a show where we wanted all kinds of characters. And, you know, I always had a pretty good feeling that if Ted, Tim and I all agreed on an actor, that there was a pretty good chance that the actor was going to be pretty good because we were all pretty uh, pretty ruthless in in making sure that we had the right people to to act opposite Donal and and, and Mikey in, in the show. And that brings up another question about casting that I wanted to ask, which is, can you talk about bringing in Donal Logue and Michael Raymond James and how they embodied their characters? You know, Donal was someone that was suggested to us, and 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 in all truth, I was familiar with him, but not really familiar with him and his work so when he first sat down with us i knew he was a really good actor but there was a lot of stuff that he was best known for you know the tower of steve and some other stuff that i um you know grounded for life that i'd never really seen a lot of which was probably a good thing because you know this role was different than than a lot of that you know but we were looking for a very lived in feeling uh for hank a guy who sort of, you know, screamed authenticity in the way that he spoke and and moved. And and Donald came in and in many ways his own life story was similar in 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 some big spots as, as Hanks was. And even though I of course had to go back and sort of after we met with him and sort of familiarize myself with his work, it it was almost perfunctory because after that meeting I just sort of thought he was Hank. <laughs> now you know he he's an amazing actor um and you know i guess i could have watched his stuff and decided oh he's not such a great actor maybe we shouldn't cast him but but truly when he left that meeting i just thought oh this guy is hank <laughs> and i hope he can act because he sort of has to be hank <laughs> um and as it turned out you know he was great mikey was someone who um auditioned for us gave a great audition and then by that point we had made a deal with donal and Donald, to his credit, was like, hey, do you want me to come in and read with the finalists for Brit? And we knew how important the chemistry 
was to to this partnership, and, and we said yes, of course, we'd love that. I guess he and Mikey had uh, had done something before together and knew each other. Um, I'm not sure if it was an episode of Life or something else. Yeah, Donald mentioned that they had worked together on Life and become friends, fast friends during that. Yeah, so I don't know if if Donald sort of you know skewed the poll for for, for Mikey uh, intentionally or unintentionally, but but. You know, when the two of them read together, you know, that chemistry that you see on screen in the show was there pretty quickly in the audition. And that's the thing that's so terrifying about making TV is that, you know, you can have all the right plans, you could get the script where you want, but if you don't cast it right and you don't have the right chemistry with, with your cast, it's all kind of useless. And and that's when we felt like we had something that creatively worked was that first day when, when you saw Donal and, and Mikey reading together and you know, there was just an ease that the two of them had with each other that just felt like two people hanging together, not two actors acting. And then they decided to live together. And were you one of the people who was a little nervous about that decision? Yeah, I heard, I heard that the two actors had decided to rent a place together. And, and I was kind of terrified because, you know, you know, actors can get on each other's nerves and you're already working 12, 13, 14 hour days. And I was just like, do you really want to go home and, <laughs> you know, and keep seeing this dude? Um, <laughs> and I kind of gently, I didn't try to talk him out of it, but I just sort of questioned the wisdom of it <laughs> to the two of them. You know, just saying, is this really something that you want to do? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I recall that I think it was a one bedroom, too. So I think Donald had the bedroom and, and Mikey had some Murphy bed that pulled out of the, the wall, <laughs> that he would, you know, like like attached to the kitchen or something. I, mean, I, I was never at the place. So I never saw it. But I would hear these stories. And I turned out to be completely wrong because they they really immersed themselves in this world. The, they they got a place sort of on the beach, uh, an ocean beach, which is where a lot of our show took place. So they're kind of living that life, and they were just developing. They were developing all this rapport and camaraderie with each other. And then they would, you know, they would re- rehearse. Uh, they they'd work all day, and then they'd come home, and then they'd run lines for the next day's work, uh, which would make them sort of show up more prepared and you know the scenes better thought out and it, it just added to the uh veracity of the show and, and the quality of the show so i i turned out to be wrong in my concerns about that i've been talking to a lot of people over the course of this this podcast and it seems like everyone talks about what a special thing was it holds a special place in everybody's hearts whether they were writer director or producer was that was that familial uh relationship something that we that you guys had on the show Definitely. It was something that, um, you know, I certainly always had the attitude that we should never forget that we're, you know, lucky to be making a TV show. And, and, you know, I try to be a generous, encouraging boss. And, and I certainly found like minded allies in, in Ted and Tim, who, while we were all committed to making a good thing, we wanted people to enjoy themselves. And, and anytime you have two, you know, really gregarious, fun people heading up your cast the way that you do with, uh, with Donal and, and, and Mikey, that really sets, uh, the tone. So in the same way that they sort of play these underdog, unlicensed private detectives, there was a sort of underdog aspect to the show. There wasn't a lot of things, there, there weren't a lot of things at that time that were filming in San Diego. 
we felt like we were off the radar. We felt like the stories we were telling were unconventional, that the way we were telling them was unconventional. And so there was really kind of a shared love for what we were trying to do that ran all the way down from, you know, the cast to the writers, to the to the crew. And there was something about that sort of San Diego beach community that lent a vibe to the proceedings that, that sort of made everyone sort of bond together. Now, that's not to say that it was all, you know, paradise. Uh, you know, there'd be, it was a lot of hard work. I remember, you know, uh, I remember our DP, Curtis Weir, was working very hard and, and, and I'd have to, call him occasionally to talk him out of quitting because you know because his standards were so high and 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 the work was was so tough you know and and there you know be disagreements here and there so but far fewer than the normal tv show i think and 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 yeah the the vibe and love for the show was palpable early was the decision made to to shoot in san diego it seems like it was set in san diego and all the settings seem sort of real and and there's an authenticity to it yeah, we we discussed Los Angeles, uh, but it was the beach communities didn't seem right. They seemed sort of too big, too touristy. You know, LA is also an expensive place to film, so the studio was trying to steer us away from that. I think we could have forced our way into LA if we had felt it was creatively right. We did a little investigation into Northern California, seeing if there was any place to film there. But then when we looked at San Diego, which, which had some you know financial benefits to filming there, and Ted and I spent, I think it was a day or two down in the Ocean Beach area, kind of getting a tour of things, we pretty quickly decided that that was the place. So we did some initial investigation of various places up and down the California coast, but but the San Diego and Ocean Beach really, really won our hearts the moment we saw it. What was the mixture of locations versus sets? Was it were there were there many standing sets for terriers? There there were some standing sets. You know, Hank's house that he bought from his ex wife. Um, it was part of the pilot. Um, some of that became a standing set. Some of Gustafson's police station stuff became a standing set. We would have swing sets that we would sort of build, you know, hotel rooms and stuff that we would do. But I would say, I think we were on an eight-day shoot for that show, and I'm going to say maybe three of those days would be on our stages on sets and, you know, four to five days every episode we're out in the world or on practical practical locations your credit is writer on dog and pony and pimp daddy can you talk a little about the differences on on those two episodes as opposed to all the other ones you worked on yeah um dog and pony was the first one after the pilot and and i definitely struggled more with with that one you know i was still trying to figure out the show and and it was it was a it was interesting it was a humbling experience in that uh you know i spent seven seasons running the shield and and four seasons you know running the unit with with david mamet and you know was used to kind of being the final word on everything and and in this case you know i knew it would be a mistake to try to impose my will on that show and on ted and i had the honor that this was ted's vision and ted's voice and and i kind of had to revert back to my you know, earlier staffing days when, when it was suddenly my job to write the best version of script I could for the guy who was the voice of the show. And I definitely had some struggles on that first episode, I, you know, and, and Ted was, 
you know, brutally honest with me about what he thought worked and what didn't. And, you know, we eventually got there. And, and then as I spent a lot of time in the editing room, you know, working on episodes, by the time we got to Pimp Daddy, which, which I co-wrote with Kelly Wheeler, I had a much better sense of the show. And I would say that the writing, you know, went much better and much easier for me on my half for that episode. And, uh, and, and, and Ted was very kind in his words and, and, and assessment, uh, which, which made me feel good. But, you know, there are a lot of people in my position that, that sort of wouldn't sort of go back and, you know, and, and defer in that way. But I really did think this was a special show. And I really did think that Ted's voice was, was so unique and, and so admirable that, 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 that I was happy to be a contributor to the show, I would rather be a contributor to a great show like Terriers than to be the the lone sole voice of of something inferior. So I was I was happy to play a role on this rather than lead the charge all the time. And then, with two exceptions, Terriers was one director per episode, uh, no repeats on directors. Was that a scheduling thing, or was it a conscious choice? It was mostly a scheduling thing, and even you know Ted directing two of the episodes. I think one of those, we had a director fall out at the last minute. And I think Ted stepped in. That may have been the finale. You know, when you're a new show, and I'm, you know, finding this on Timeless as well this year, it's kind of hard to book directors for multiple episodes right away. One, you know, a lot of directors want to direct on a new show. I think they view it as more opportunity, but they, they're a little reluctant to sign up for multiple episodes until they see what the show is truly going to be. And, you know, as showrunners, you're also a little concerned. What if you book somebody for two or three episodes and they come in and they, and they really don't get the show on the first episode and now you're locked in? You know, so so usually on first year shows, you know, I, I think it's usually, you know, you, you're bringing in directors that you, in my case, I've worked with in the past, who I think are going to be good. But until you see them actually inter- interacting with the show, you're not sure. And then the minute you realize, oh, they did a really good job, then that's when you sort of try to book them again. Yeah, I know specifically you had Ryan Johnson there for an episode. Do you think if, if you got season two, would you have had, would you be able to get Ryan Johnson back, you think? Well, Ryan was completely uh, Ted Griffin's uh, find, and, and he fought hard for Ryan, which seems silly now <laughs> in, in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but very early on, yeah, because usually on these shows, you, you want to sort of use the people who've done a lot of TV work, you know, because a TV schedule is different than a film schedule. And Ted had said, you know, have you ever seen Brick, the movie Ryan directed? I said, no. He said, well, you should, really should watch it. I think Ryan would be great for the show. You know, I'd like to get him in. I said, well, you know, Ted, it's going to, you know, just so you're aware, it's probably going to be a tough sell on a first season show to have the network sign off and a director who hasn't done much TV. Has he done anything? And Ted was like, well, he just finished a breaking bad. And that made me think, Oh, well, that's, that's a great credit, obviously. And is there any way to see that episode? And, and, and we were able to see the episode. It was the sort of famous fly episode. And I thought that was quite good. I really loved brick. I thought brick was fantastic. And, and Ted was so passionate about it. I was like, you know, okay. And, Went to FX and they took some convincing, you know, and and I think we showed them the Breaking Bad episode and and, and Ted made a passionate case. It's, it's always a case where you have to fight the hardest for the people that 
ultimately turn out to be the most talented. You know, I had to fight for Walt Goggins really hard on the shield. You know, but yeah, so Ryan came in and was incredible, obviously. And, and since then, his career has skyrocketed and he's done very little TV. I think he sort of did a few more Breaking Bads. I don't know if he did much else. So, you know, it probably would have come down to Ted sort of begging and, and, and asking him as a friend to do it. And my guess is he probably would. But um, Ryan, you know, it, it's great that, that Ryan's one of our directors uh, on that show. Um, and it's been so fun to watch his, uh, you know, career take off subsequently. And now he's directing what I'm sure is going to be a massive, massive Star Wars movie. So the, the days of having Ryan Johnson direct on my shows are probably gone, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is too bad. But uh, I'm glad we got the one episode we did out of him. You mentioned FX, and I actually wanted to talk about that. What was your relationship like with, with FX? Great. It always has been. It was during terriers and is now i mean the, i mean literally last month the guys at fx gave me uh tickets to the world series because i was such a big cubs fan they got me they, you know fox was broadcasting at fox sports and you know that's the nature of our relationship is that you know nine years after the shield ended six years after terriers ended they they still look out for me so they're they're amazing people over there john's great and canceling the show i think john would tell you was one of the toughest decisions he ever had to make, although not one of the hardest, but it was one of the toughest. <laughs> I think he had a great deal of uh, affection and and respect for me. I think he had a great deal of affection and respect for the show. I don't think anyone wanted the show to succeed more than John did. And, and yet, you know, the show was just a couple years ahead of its time. It really was a show that, I think would have prospered in the streaming age. And yet we premiered just before the streaming age was really starting. And, um, you know, we, we couldn't get an initial audience to show up for it. It was a hard show to watch unless you were fully immersed into it, you know, which at that time on a weekly basis and without an easy way to catch up the way that you can catch up now on Netflix or, or, you know, or FX now, it, it, it just became a really hard show to draw an audience to and and john brought ted and myself into his office and you know explained the economics of the decision and you know i think ted and i had relegated ourselves at that point to the reality that we weren't going to come back and so it was almost ted and i trying to console john more than john consoling us about it all and i i just thought that he handled you know he handled it about as well as he could he made a pretty extraordinary you know phone call to to journalists and TV critics the next day to kind of explain the decision, but also to express his love for the show. So if you have to get canceled, that's probably the best way to get canceled, I would say. <laughs> well, I literally everybody listening to this podcast, and definitely people besides that, would love to see more Terriers of some kind. Do you think that's anything that might happen? What would have happen for that to come together? I think from the perspective of the creative people involved, Ted and myself and Donal and Mikey, I think it's something that we would be open to considering, but it would take Fox 21, with whom I'm no longer affiliated, to decide that there'd be some money in it to do, and there'd need to be an outlet that would want to fund it, or there'd need to be some massive uh, Kickstarter campaign so I want to get people's hopes up. You know, one of the issues that we have is, you know, I, I, did, I had read a few years ago in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, I forget which, um, I think it was 
either Reed Hastings or Ted Sarandos talking about how Terriers had been an unexpected hit for them on Netflix or had done better than they expected. Um, probably because, you know, the ratings for the, for the original show were so low that they didn't think maybe people would catch it, but, but because it was a streaming kind of show and word of mouth, it did. Having said that, we never really found out how successful it was. We didn't, we never really found out what the audience is out there for it. Uh, and as long as Netflix, you know, keeps its data secret, it's it's hard to sort of show the outside world that that there's an appetite for for the show. Anecdotally, I experience it all the time, you know, in my life and online and on the street. You know, I feel that there's a big appetite for for more terriers, but you know the the bean counters in in Hollywood tend to act conservatively, so there'd be a few things that would have to fall into place to happen. But you know. You know, you see these revivals, whether it's the X-Files on Fox or whether it's Gilmore Girls on Netflix or Full House. Um, you know, those are very different kinds of shows than us. But, you know, I would say in this day and age, you never know. So we'd, we'd have to see. But it's something that Ted and I feel like there are more stories to tell if if there was an appetite for them. All right. That's, that's all I have for you today. I really want to appreciate uh not just having taken the time to talk to me, but being involved in the show that I love so much. Well, thank you. You know, one of the great things about making these shows is is learning that there are some people that get really passionate about them, and it makes all the late nights and and the hard work worth it. And um, and so, as I said at the beginning, not only thank you for being a fan, but thanks for spreading the word because definitely um, people come to the show new all the time, and you know, I still get tweets from people saying. You know, I just watched Terriers for the first time. It's great. Don't know why it was canceled. Well, part of the reason was you didn't watch it six years ago. <laughs> but I am glad that you're watching it now. I'm glad uh, that, that people uh, are rediscovering it. So thank you for that contribution. All right. Thank you very much. Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tayan. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Paul Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at the TVDudes.com. Thanks for listening.